like our minds are blown at how far we've come with the quality of our product because of an attention to detail that's rooted way back in our childhood. I'm Danielle Chalfant, a senior in economics at the University of Washington. You're listening to Founded, a podcast that connects you to a community of entrepreneurs, investors, and mentors involved with the Burke Center for Entrepreneurship. Their journey will leave you engaged, educated, elevated, and ready to launch your own idea. Thank you, Danielle. This is Founded. I'm your host, Charles Trillingham. Today, our guests are the co-founders of Joe Chocolates. And a little later, we'll talk to environmental and clean tech mentor and judge, Deb Hagen-Lukens. Let's get started. I'm joined by Sam Tanner and Peter Kegment, co-founders of the startup Joe Chocolates. Their product is a unique take on artisanal chocolate combined with caffeine, and it was born during their time at the University of Washington. Thank you guys for joining me. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be here. Um, so I think the phrase overnight success is um, used too much. Talk about a little bit about where your journey began. I think for me, it began in uh, somewhere around sophomore year at UW, so that would be about three and a half years ago now. Um, I just... No, 2013, 2014? Yeah, right around in there. I, I realized that what I, I was actually wanting to do was start a business. Um, and it, it at first it wasn't, oh, I want to start a business. It's I want to be in control of something. I want to build something from scratch. I want to experiment. The first business I started uh, that actually had a business license was uh, called Wiz Creative Marketing. And so I'd uh, manage Facebook pages or Squarespace websites for local businesses and kind of sell my um, early marketing knowledge to local businesses that need a little help with it. But the first time you two worked together was Mm -hmm. Card Swapper. That's correct. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that experience. That was was fun. That was... uh... We, we call that our, our best example, our best experience of putting the cart before the horse. Um, we had all the resources we could possibly need. We had funding, we had employees, we had, you know, everybody had a position that was well-defined and we had really no product, no service that functioned. So Peter and I always look back and kind of laugh that we were so well-prepared without actually knowing much of anything. Um, it was, it was a great idea and just had pretty bad execution because we didn't really know how to execute on what we wanted to do. So card swapper was fun and I wouldn't change that experience for anything. It, it it helped me become the business owner that I am today. And it was kind of learning by trial and error and it has made us execute at Joe chocolates a million times faster. Do you feel like you're better startup founders now? Absolutely. Having had that level of failure, oh, most definitely. Shutting or leaving a business like Peter and I did is like breaking up with, like, you know, uh, breaking up with a girlfriend or a, a wife or anything. It's it's unreal how difficult it was to say we can't do this anymore and to leave our other partner. It was it was a really tough experience and coming to terms first for yourself saying like, okay, I can't do this anymore. It's not working. And then coming to terms with the other people that you were employing saying, Hey, like, I know I started this. I know I was, I was your leader, but I'm out. That's a, that's impossibly hard, but it had to be done. There was, there was like a very realistic understanding that like this wasn't going to be paying my bills after school and it wasn't going to grow the way I wanted it to. And so really going back to square one while graduation is, a month away and uh, 
you know, you got to pay rent is uh, sort of a just it hit, it hits hard, but it makes you that more motivated to go out and start the next thing. I mean, it's hard to reconcile that idea of the pressure of wanting to keep going because you're on a path and also listening to your gut. Yeah. Yeah, it's difficult to make that call like this is done, time to begin again. And uh I'd say I learned a lot more doing card swapper or doing Wiz Creative than I realized when it was over. I'd say on a daily basis something happens to me and I know what to do because something didn't work in the past or I had those experiences. You know, in society, amongst entrepreneurs, there's always this value in the person who stuck it out, you know, one more hour, one more day, and that they've turned something that everybody thought was going to fail into a success. You hear that story a million times. Um, But there's also the much less told story about the person who knew when to quit and move on. And that was one of the big fears for me, is I felt like maybe I should just give it one more day to really, like, see if I could make it work. And finally come to the point where I was like, no, I think the success is going to be a personal one of me learning how to end something. That's, I mean, one of the biggest things I learned is that sometimes you have to quit, but you're not quitting overall. You're moving on to something more important. Now, do you feel like you had that kind of defining moment in your process with Joe Chocolates? It's been different since the beginning. So when me and Peter would come home, we lived in the same house when we were in college, all four years. We would come home at the end of the day from Card Swapper, and both of us would cook. And we'd always be cooking, we'd always be making food, we'd always be sharing it with our friends. And there was this solitude at the end of the day of working at a job that really wasn't that fulfilling and was, you know, struggling. And we'd come back and cook and make food and enjoy ourselves. And it got to the point where we started to realize that this passion for food was being kind of unrealized except at the end of our day as like a thing of solitude and like, you know, self-appreciation and sharing and love and caring. And as we started, or as Joe Chocolates was going in the class project at UW, it just became more and more obvious that it's something that we wanted to pursue because it was a way to take a passion for food and turn it into a business, which is, you know, the other passion that we had. It was making having having things grow making things and then also this love for the culinary experience i think for me too joe chocolates felt different from the beginning because every thing that we did was um every decision we made was validated so um i remember our first we didn't buy cardboard boxes to sell our first uh, wholesale chocolate uh i moved into a um a rental house and there was a bunch of cardboard boxes in the basement and I had some Amazon boxes laying around. So you just X out the logo with a Sharpie and that was our first, you know, it, it was it was like, okay, can I sell five cases of chocolate? And then you sell them and then it, you get to the point where it's like, okay, I think we need blank cardboard boxes for wholesale. And then kind of, I remember buying a uh, laser jet printer because I was, I realized like, okay, you got to print invoices to look professional and I can't keep going back to my old college fraternity because I'm graduated and I got to move on. So, you know, then I remember we didn't have much money, but we bought a new printer and it just, you know, that was because you have to look professional to these new wholesale accounts. And so every decision was, um, kind of based on will this help us establish ourselves further will this further the business will this help us make more money maybe talk a little bit about um 
you know, growing up in the world of food and were you into chocolate? Were you into energy drinks? Is it? I was always just fascinated by manufacturing. So for me, I love our equipment. I love having employees who make things with their hands every day. I love how things come and go from our warehouse. Um, And uh, I did, I worked for a long time in a fish and chip restaurant starting when I was 16. I worked there pretty much on and off through college as well. Um, and so I loved food. It, I just, there's something about handing someone something you made and then they enjoy it and they eat it. Uh, they come back for more. They enjoy it. For me, um, I grew up in a family of, uh, amateur and professional cooks. Um, it was really, I mean, every meal was home cooked, sourced from co-ops or, you know, the best quality ingredients my family could find. And I was really lucky to grow up in that kind of environment where I was able to eat good food three meals a day every single day of my life. And having that opportunity really opened up my eyes to how quality ingredients can lead to quality combinations that make a quality product. Um, And I fell in love with that. Now, funny enough, growing up, I wouldn't touch chocolate. I didn't like it. Um, I the just the the texture and everything about it was off-putting to me when I was like five years old. Um, then come college, I started to really enjoy uh, coffee and chocolate and just things that were more rich. My palate really started to change, and I just became really fascinated in understanding how it was made, how to like. make the best quality chocolate and then how to like pour the best quality cup of coffee I was kind of always in search of that next step of ingredients the same way that my mom would make you know every uh, week she'd be toying with a new recipe and trying to make it better and better Um, I remember she made chicken marbella for like two months until she found that she had mastered the recipe and by the end of two months I couldn't stand chicken marbella anymore um, it actually ruined capers for me, but it was that same kind of, uh, way of operation that I'm the same way. It's like when I know I need to make something perfect, I won't stop until it's perfect. And what's cool about working at Joe Chocolates is it's never perfect because we can, as we grow bigger, we have access to better quality ingredients. We have access to better quality or, uh, a higher level of expertise and different employees who are willing to work that much harder. And so every week we see new slabs of chocolate that are being poured. And when we taste them, we're just like, our minds are blown at how far we've come with the quality of our product because of an attention to detail that's rooted way back in our child. Sam, I saw, um, so you went to high school in Olympia. That's correct. Correct. Do you remember a talent show? Uh, yeah. Performance? <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, which one? <laughs> well, uh, there's a YouTube clip which you may or may not realize is still out there of you singing quite a tune. Yes. Uh, is that uh, looking back? Uh, did you feel like you know? I think it's fascinating as part of an entrepreneur's journey that you grow up and you have dreams, and there's the big dream, right? And then you kind of grow and learn in the process, and then you realize that your big dream is more more grounded. Did you think that being the next Jack Johnson was <laughs> yeah, in your future back then? I did, actually. I uh, So in high school, um, I thought I was going to be a audio engineer, and everything I did was based around music. Um, I like taught myself how to play guitar. I was 
uh, classically trained um, as a baritoner. I uh, every year was competing in the solo ensembles. I was in a band. I mean, music was like my life. And I went to UW thinking I was going to do something very related to either music production or music performance. And I was um, I was pre-admitted to the business school, and I was like, well, sure, like you know that that seems fair. Um, we'll see what happens and the love for music never died i mean i still play music all the time but what i realized that it was a love for creating things more than necessarily creating songs or helping produce a piece of music what i found i loved was just the creative process and so when i, I didn't even know entrepreneurship was a thing like Going into high school, sure, I probably could have told you that people make businesses, but I had no idea the process. It just, it didn't really even occur to me. And so going into college uh, at UW, uh, I was, I had nothing to do one night, and I knew that there was this thing called build your own business that was going on, and so I just walked in. I was, it was, I was, had absolutely nothing to do, and I walked in and started listening to these people pitch these ideas, and... From there came this love and understanding that the creative process applies in a whole different, you know, whole set of ways. It's not just art. It's not just music. There, I mean, you can be creative in a million different places, and that's when I just fell in love with this idea of creating, just creating, writing down. Different so this ideas. is a couple of years prior yeah, to exactly. the creating a company experience. Yes. Okay. Yeah, the BYOB was in my freshman year of college. And so I started tossing around a bunch of different ideas, just things to try out. And Card Swapper was actually born out of that that class or that um that meeting. And I just remember I there was this mini Shark Tank event, and I pitched the idea for Card Swapper, and it just got shot down. And that was like the moment I decided I was going to be an entrepreneur, because as opposed to feeling shut down and dejected. I felt motivated by being told no, and I, I wanted to prove the people who told me no wrong. And I that's just when I fell in love with it. That's when I, de I actively declared my major as entrepreneurship and decided that audio engineering was going to be a hobby. Uh, and it was this feeling of uh, a pivotal moment, just being told no and wanting to have them later on say yes. And... That was a huge moment for me. So flash forward a little bit to 2016 now. You've entered the business plan competition at the University of Washington. Find a little success there and realize there's this other option for you. There's the accelerator, the Jones plus Foster accelerator. How did it feel going through those six months of fairly intensive milestones? I remember... When I found out I we were going to be in the Jones Foster Accelerator, um, and I immediately called my parents, and I was like, I'm quitting my internship. I had an internship at a um, local company that I'd gotten kind of right out of school, because it's what you do when you graduate. You get an internship, and you you know make earn a little money. And, the real uh, world. The real world, yeah. <laughs> and I immediately told my parents, uh, like, you know, within 15 minutes of finding out that I was going to tell them the next day I'm not continuing on in this internship to a full-time position. And uh, it the, the Jones Foster Accelerator was absolutely pivotal to our success. Like, we, we needed that 
um, to kind of be the next stepping stone. Otherwise, this would have had to been part-time for much longer. Like, there was no other option for finishing that program, getting the loan. Um, we'd convinced our attorneys who incorporated us and did a bunch of work to defer payment for six months, um, conveniently right after the Jones Foster Accelerator Program. We built a business from day one as if we were going to be getting the grant um, because it was uh, there just wasn't another option. You know, we knew that that was the milestone we had to hit. So, What was the first major success you had? Was it the Made in Washington partnership or was it the Bartell Drugs? Uh, so I say, okay, the first major success for us was more of a moment of validation. So me and Peter were uh, trading off and on doing... Um, we were selling at the Fremont Farmer's Market alongside some of our other friends at Uphill Designs. And we we had been doing it for a couple weeks. You know, the people were, some people were positively responding to the product, other people weren't. And so it was just this constant up and down of emotions of people validating the product and not. And the big moment of validation, I was walking down on University Street downtown and all of a sudden I got an email from a person saying, hey, one of my employees tried your chocolate at the Fremont Farmer's Market and absolutely loved it. Can Do you have wholesale? Do you sell wholesale? And me and Peter are like, well, no. <laughs> We'd love to. Um, that was Trudy, the owner of Stoneway Cafe. Yeah. And so that was the very first account we went into, and she wanted a case of, you know, at that point we just had two flavors. We had our coconut flavor, we had our salted caramel, and she's like, I want a case of each. And Peter was like, we don't have that much chocolate. Like, we don't have yeah. 50 bags of chocolate. We don't even have enough chocolate to make 50 <laughs> bags of chocolate. So that was our first major success. And yeah. it's, you know, that's a tiny little success. I've, but yeah. that was huge. That was huge. That was the moment we realized that we could be a wholesale business and that people wanted our chocolate who had never met us. Yeah. Sam got the email, um, immediately told me, look, we like we can get this, you know, the wholesale business is beginning essentially. And I borrowed my girlfriend's car and I went to go meet with the owner to drop off the chocolate and she wrote me a check right there, and I straight up got tears in my eyes. I was like, this is going to work. Like, we made a couple bucks. You know, we sold two cases of chocolate, and I was just, oh, it was, it was pure bliss. Like, I was like, this is going to, this is totally going to work. But then, me and Peter realized that the most important order is not the first order. It's the reorder. Yeah. Because that validates that, A, an owner was willing to take a risk on your product, but the reorder validates that their customer base is repeatedly interested in what you're doing. And so I think the next most exciting thing was when we saw Trudy two weeks later say, hey, I need more chocolate now. We sold out. And me and Peter run over there again in, um, in his car this time with twice as much chocolate and deliver it to him. And everybody in the shop is saying how much they love it, how all the customers are loving it, how it's selling so well. We give them bags to eat themselves. They're super appreciative. And it was this next moment of understanding how a business operates, how a wholesale business operates, and like what are the important milestones to create a return customer. It was that moment was because the first time Peter dropped it off, I wasn't there. That moment for me was really awesome because I really operate, you know, the things that validate me and make me feel like I'm successful is seeing a person enjoy the thing that I'm making for them. So when I'm seeing these, the, the baristas saying, this product people love, that moment I was, I 
have not felt that kind of joy a whole lot of times in my life. Nordstrom and the way that 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 partnership <laughs> is almost taking on uh, an urban myth like quality to it. I think years from now you'll look back and probably really laugh about. You're laughing right now. Maybe for those who haven't heard that story, um, share kind of a brief brief overview of how that that worked out. So I think I think Sam should tell the story, but I'll set the stage like. The, the numbers were so small for the amount of chocolate we were selling a month. And, um, you know, we, you, Sam was working on this full-time. And uh, I think he just started working on it full-time. And so we're like, okay, how do we get sales to the point where we can someday earn a paycheck and, uh, you know, make this, like, really, really feasible? And so we went to go just burn the shoe leather downtown Seattle, go door-to-door, see who would pick up the chocolate, and then... So I decided that Nordstrom would be the best option for us because a ton of the Nordstroms are from UW. Um, they should try. They should want to support us because me and Peter are awesome. Because we had a great product that, and they had a cafe. And at that point, most of the locations that we were in were cafes, but so many of them are one-offs. In Seattle, there's a million one-off cafes, but there's very few chains, especially very few chains that aren't their own roaster who would want us to use their beans and their chocolate. So Nordstrom was just this kind of beacon at the top of the mountain. And I was like, you know what? I can get it. I can do it. I'm going to get Nordstrom. So... We're walking around downtown, handing out our chocolate different locations that we think our product could do well in, and we walk into the downtown Nordstrom E-Bar, and I find the first barista who will, you know, who's not super busy, and I say, hey, can, can I give you something to give to your manager? I own a local chocolate company, and I think it could do really well in this cafe. And the guy goes, actually, my manager's here. Would you like to talk to her? And so Amanda comes over, and Amanda tells me, hey, like, I can't make any buying decisions here, so this needs to go, you know, up to my boss. And I was like, okay, well, you enjoy these, and then I pulled out some more chocolate out of my bag, and said, and then can you give these to your boss? And so this process kept going on and on, where we would go in, and I think what was happening is they would eat the chocolate as opposed to pass it on. So we kept giving Nordstrom more and more chocolate, but eventually we found out that uh, the person we needed to talk to was this woman named Noelle. And so we went into the corporate office headquarters, which is just right around the corner, and talked to, I don't know if he was a security guard or what, but we pretended... He was a security guard. Yeah, we pretended we had a meeting. And he uh, told us, like, well, who do you have a meeting with? And we were like, with Noelle. And he goes, well, Noelle's only here, like, a couple days a week. The rest of the day she's, you know, in different states, so is she here? Like, do you know if she's here? Cause kind of testing us. And I go, Oh yeah, she's here. And he goes, no, she's not. And so me and Peter are like, okay, this not off to, <laughs> to a great start. And I was like, well, I have product for her that she requested, which wasn't entirely true. I don't think she even knew who we were yet. And we emailed her and she's like, yeah, I loved it. Like your product is delicious. Can you send me some more so I can give it to my boss? Of course, another level of person to check off on it. Can you send pricing information to my boss so we can decide if we want to carry this? And so I, of course, did. And he loved it. And his name's Bill. And all of a sudden, I get this email back. She goes, so uh, if you can work with this pricing model, um, 
we can green light it for every single location across the United States. And at that moment, you know, me and Peter, our jaw dropped because we get a list of locations and there's over 200 of them or something. And we had never anticipated just a green light like that. And so what we start, we send out all of our information to all the different vendors across the United States. We start seeing orders pour in from, you know, individual stores as the individual managers start saying, I really want that. Um, right now, we are in over 60 Nordstrom e-bars across the United States in 15 different states. Um, every single week, we see new e-bars pour in. And actually, what we just started doing uh, today is we've been working with Noel on a new smaller package size, a one-ounce Joe Chocolates. We call it our Grab and Joe because we want to start putting those in the Nordstrom e-bars too so people have a smaller unit that they can grab and take with them. So it's been... We've been working on this relationship forever, and a lot of it is just due to persistence and the cold walk-in. One of the most important things about growing a product is being able to do a cold walk-in. I think in business, especially in our business, there's two relationships that we always try to nurture. We always try to make sure that we pass on the best quality ingredients and best quality experience to the people who eat Joe Chocolates. And we also try to do the very best for any vendor, no matter how big or small they are. We try to nurture every relationship as if it's the most important part of our day, because it is. So there's the other aspect of the relationship. You've gotten some coverage in the media. You've done this essentially without you know, any full-time marketing people, any full-time social media people. Um, you had a big feature in the Seattle Times. And that led to some buzz. Um, Peter, maybe talk about how that felt after that article came out and you're out giving out samples and now this whole new group of people are coming up to you. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was just a funny sort of surreal experience being in the Seattle Times. Grew up in Seattle, always read the Seattle Times. And so it, there was definitely a feeling of validation that someone saw what we were doing and wrote a story about it that that felt great um it was also really interesting how people would hear about you i was just so fascinated that people um even from out of state would write us messages through our website we got notes of encouragement we got uh, a lot of people like to give advice you know from the sidelines which is always appreciated um and for me personally it was just it just felt good to tell my mom, you know, oh, look in the newspaper, uh, you know, on this day. And uh, that's what I kind of appreciated the most out of it. But um, for the business, I think it really helped push us along. That month was, I think we did like twice the sales we had in the previous month, um, you know, after that article ran, which was thrilling, uh, somewhat frightening to just instantly scale up like that. Um, but it was, it was exactly what we needed at that moment. It just, I think it told, you know, our story and it was really remarkable, the reach of that, just the people to contact you and know who you were when you were doing a sampling event. Now that's taking place at the same time you're trying to secure your first real large funding with investors. That sounds nerve wracking. Was it? To an extent, yeah. I mean, you're you're giving someone else the opportunity to tell your story while you're also going and meeting people who have the ability to say yes or no, I want to be a part of your company. I want to put money into it. So Janet, too, at the Seattle Times did an incredible job portraying who me and Peter were as individuals and also the company that we were, we were growing. Um, and 
I think we owe a lot to her in the interest that we got from the people who invested in us because it validated what we were doing and it validated in their eyes that we were a real company led by two guys who, although we were young, were doing something really, really cool and that people really liked. Yeah, I think there's a kind of a blessing in being a young person who's a little naive. You you just have this kind of confidence in the business because it has really kind of become your life and you really understand it so intimately and um i think it made investment meetings easy because i'd either have an answer um and i could just be very honest about you know what's good what needs improvement um and it was just it was most of those conversations i think i was surprised at how easy it was to um, whether it was provide financial information, information on where we want to go, um, because I just I just felt like I was so inside of the business at that point. Um, it was really just the, the two of us and you know a handful of help on the side. I think that one thing that Peter isn't saying that's extremely important to this story is we have kind of a constant mantra here um, at Joe Chocolates that luck favors the prepared. Um, and Peter is the most prepared person I know. Peter is always has an answer because he spent sleepless nights researching it beforehand. So our investment meetings were easy because Peter knew his stuff. Um, I mean, the financial documents, our go-forward plan, the business model, Peter knew it. And on the other end, I knew our product. I know our product so incredibly well because for me, that is everything. Peter loves the process and the product. But for me, I love the recipes and the ingredients and the people. So when you put us together in a room, there really wasn't any question we couldn't answer that was within reason. Um, and we did. Every investment meeting was completely different from the next because for every single investor, the most quote-unquote important part of the business is entirely different for some people it's marketing for some people it's sell-through for some people it's vendor management for some people it's really tiny infinitesimal parts of the business plan um and you just have to be able to answer any of those questions so we had people come in and pitch different investment models to us and in the end we found a core group of investors who were i think investing in me and peter as opposed to all these tiny little details that was really important to them they saw that me and Peter were willing to work incredibly hard to get this thing that we loved from a whole bunch of different angles out to the world. A big thank you to Sam Tanner and Peter Kekamit. Of course, you can head to joechocolates.com to order online some for yourself. Now to our next guest, Deb Hagen-Lukens, longtime entrepreneurship instructor at UW, as well as a coach, mentor, and investor in clean tech, consumer product, and high-tech startups. Deb has served on the boards for the Northwest Entrepreneurs Network, the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs Seattle, and dedicates her time to environmental innovation and advocacy. Deb's most recent endeavors include volunteering for the Climate Reality Project and instructing the Environmental Innovation Practicum. Deb, you have been a force in the Seattle entrepreneurship ecosystem for more than two decades. I know that feels like a long time. Where did that passion originate? You know, I just enjoy working with with young companies. I love the energy of startup teams and the speed with which things can happen. Uh, I never actually worked myself for a really big company, but I worked as a consultant with a lot of large corporate clients. And 
there's a process. You know, there's a process that needs to be gone through. There's um, a lot of people typically involved, and there needs to be some, call it marketing, to get everybody to push the company or to push the project or to push a program or department in a particular direction. And startups can spin on a dime with the learning that they get when they start hopefully talking to customers before they've actually built their product, although sometimes that's not the case. But they can take that feedback and they can be really, really responsive. And that's, it's just fun. It's just way more fun. Do you remember your uh, first experience working with a startup or consulting with one? There are several actually that, that come to mind, but the one that I think about often because I learned a lot from that process was uh, a company that made what eventually became the pure water filter that you can screw on a faucet, and they make other products as well. Um, and the, the, in, the marketing environment for bringing that product to market was vastly different than it is today. And one of the biggest benefits of the filter was it pulled lead out of the water. And the educational process of first trying to get people to care that there might be lead in their water, which post-Flint sounds ridiculous, but we're talking about you know, the late 1980s and things were a little bit different. And first having to get that educational hurdle behind before you could even start talking about the product itself and what it cost and what returns might be or any of those, those kinds of things. Uh, and I, I relate to that one because that's so often the conversation that I have as a coach or as a mentor with startups it, when they're in an early stage and thinking about an idea is how much education do you have to do before your potential customers recognize they might have a problem? because that's gonna slow you down dramatically. Whereas if you are addressing a problem that they know they have, then you're starting from a much more advanced position in telling your story and why yours is a good solution for them. Does it surprise you how much the idea of a startup has changed since even the late 80s and the 90s? Well, certainly an enormous amount of things have changed. The there was, there was no internet. Um, you know, when I first got out of college, there was very little computer usage. I'm going to sound so old if you beat this in the interview, but it's, but it's true. And so the ability to innovate has drastically changed. Certainly we have learned a great deal um, in the science and technology sectors all the way around. Deb, one of your other early startup experiences with, was actually with the uh, Sleep Comfort startup. I think students might be interested to hear a little bit about that story and kind of their uh, customer discovery. So yeah, so the, the company is now known as, it's now known as the Sleep Number Bed. When they started out, they were Select Comfort, and um, I worked with them probably 30 years ago or so. And they were, you know, just trying to get awareness for the product and get people to come and try the bed as they were building out their national distribution. And on their wish list for publicity was to get into Playboy. I have, I'm saying this on the record, I have never opened a Playboy. But I knew how to pitch a story. So I was able to get a product story placed in Playboy. And they sent me the clip, not the magazine, they sent me the clip, and they, they didn't use a product photograph. They had done an illustration, then they played on the princess and the pea, and then did a really nice write-up about the story. And I know from the client that they got a lot of inquiries from that listing. You know, this is back when you had to dial a 1-800 number to get product information. 
So post-sleep comfort, a few years later, you're working with a firm and with high-tech companies, and the dot-com bust happens. That was just such a crazy period. You know, the dot-com boom um, brought so much money into high-tech um, because of kind of the nature of Seattle's technology community at the time. We had you know, really, really big companies like Microsoft. Um, we had very few what I would call the middle class of technology companies. There were a few, and a few of those are still here, where they employed in the hundreds, but not you know beyond that. And then there was just this enormous explosion of startup companies. And there was a lot of venture capital money flowing into it. And then, you know, and then everything crashed and became very different. So from a management perspective, both of those were difficult times. It was really hard to fill positions during the boom. And I refused to change the qualifications, you know, that I was looking for. So it was kind of perpetually understaffed at the agency. And then when clients were going out of business or those that didn't go out of business were slashing their budgets, I had to do the same with staff. So it was a fairly miserable but highly educational time. And that also led to one of the next steps for you. It did, because um, during that same time frame, uh, I became recognized in the entrepreneurial community in Seattle, and that led first to an invitation to become a founding board member with what was then the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs. It was a some MBAs out of, out of the Silicon Valley area, and they wanted to start building chapters, and Seattle was the first, first chapter. So I was invited to join that board, which was a really, really great experience. And that brought me to the attention of Connie Barasa-Shaw, who was then the executive director of the Northwest Entrepreneur Network, which was a, a nonprofit organization explicitly set up to try to help entrepreneurs succeed. Uh, in in building high growth potential businesses, so ones that could truly be you know decent sized employers in Seattle. And Connie, of course, is the now former director yes. of the Burke Center for Entrepreneurship. Yes, one of the reasons that the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs was created was because of the huge chasm between funding, uh, I mean, the amount of money that was going toward female founders versus the amount of money that was going to male founders. And in fairness to the male founders, there was just a whole, there were a whole lot fewer women founding companies. And that was the whole point of the organization was to first bring more women into the entrepreneurial world to uh, help people see that that was a potential path for them. And then, of course, to try to raise more money and be able to help them get that kind of financing to to compete for those dollars. And it's still, like you said, it's still a conversation that's happening today, um, especially in the high-tech sector, but it's there's still a significant gap. So from that experience uh, with the network, you're now involved with the University of Washington, and you're teaching marketing, I did. I taught uh, the undergraduate class in entrepreneurial marketing for 10 years. Uh, three of those years, I also taught the MBA level class. And and all of that was great fun. Um, I was able to, I was offered the environmental innovation practicum in probably 2010, I think it was. Uh, but I didn't want to become essentially a full-time instructor, and we were looking at adding more classes at the undergraduate level, more classes at the graduate level, and and I really wanted the practicum because that's where my heart 
lies, you know, is in the environmental innovation side of things. So uh, helped recruit a replacement to take over the MBA class and then started teaching the practicum. And I taught my last marketing class uh, fall quarter of last year. So I have made yet another pivot even more toward environment. So I now have a, a focus exclusively on environmental innovation and um, environmental activism. Well, earlier we were talking about sleep comfort, and you mentioned how, you know, for customers to get more information, there was a 1-800 number. Right. And that was, and you know, and, and their big focus was print. Entrepreneurial marketing has changed significantly and changed significantly over the decade that you taught it. it it changed enormously i mean the at the beginning i was trying to convince students that there was benefit in investing time in blogging and getting their story out and being able to have that kind of more direct connection with the customers while still relying on kind of the more traditional public relations tactics that were still very powerful uh, at the time that I started teaching. Social media has just exploded, you know, in that time frame. And yet we still see a lot of companies, and, and this has really improved in the last few years in particular, but we still see a lot of companies that still think of marketing as a function where you just push information out and don't engage in a dialogue and don't try to have that kind of true relationship with your customers. And that's what I think that the, the newer, the younger generation of entrepreneurs, the students that we're seeing today, they understand so much better because they've been on the customer side of that exchange and they have a better idea of the conduit, the lack of conduit. I mean, the fact that it really is more like a, an on-the-table conversation versus a pipeline to display or, or to push out information. They understand that. What they don't still necessarily understand is um, brand management. And that includes personal brand management and really thinking about what are they putting up on, on social media? What are they putting out there in the public domain that's still going to be there when they're trying to hopefully run a big company someday? Yeah, there has been um, a closing of that divide between being the founder or the CEO of a company and the company itself. Mm -hmm. And now uh, the importance of understanding that your role within the startup and who you are also reflects back to who the startup is. It absolutely does. And, you know, I used to talk with students about the fact that if you, unless you're coming out of an industry where you're already known before you create your first company, that really the only brand you've got to work with on the day that you launch is yours. It's, it's all about who you are and who your team members are and who might be backing you in terms of advisors or, or funders or whatever leverage you might have. Because your, your name that you just created as a business means nothing. It has no equity. It has no value. It has no reputation whatsoever. And that's a fantastic thing if you're really truly creating that brand from scratch and before we had so much vested in social media as individuals, and for a lot of these students starting from a fairly young you know, age, it was a cleaner slate than it might be for some who are starting now, where they've got a bit of life history already recorded and available to the public if, for those that are willing to dig. So it's an interesting, it's just an interesting change and a, and a new dimension to be thinking about when you're you're trying to figure out what 
what do you want your brand to be? What do you want to stand for? What are the brand values that you want to imprint upon this brand new company that you're creating? And that's, that's different than it used to be. How would you explain maintaining that balance between when you're early stage wanting to put so much effort into the marketing aspect into it, into the defining of your brand versus also developing the company and making sure that the core aspects of building an early stage company are strong? Yeah, I've, I have seen companies who have made the mistake of putting too much emphasis on the former and not enough on the, on the latter. And, um, you know, you really don't have anything to talk about if you don't have progress in the business. You have to build the business. That has to be the number one priority. I, I feel strongly that that has to have a focus on the customer and meeting a genuine customer need. But you also have to have potential customers learn about you, right? Because if every sale you're making is because you're going out in the sales role, that's a horribly slow way to scale a business. There has to be leads that come into the business as well. So that balance has to be struck. And it's, it, it is admittedly really difficult for companies in early stages. I think a, a big piece of that that I used to talk to students about was just figuring out a slot of time that you can dedicate and blocking it out and saying, I'm going to dedicate this much time you know, per week, per day, whatever was most appropriate, just to make sure this stuff gets done and finding an opportunity to do that. Because you're going to grow a lot faster when you can respond to leads. And the better you're telling your story, the warmer those leads are that are coming in. And that's a better use of your time. How does that relate now to environmental innovation? Environmental innovation is, uh, to me, a fascinating category because it it has such a diverse set of potential customers. You know, some entrepreneurs might be targeting utilities for a sale. Um, that's a and that's a slow process, right? That's a very very different situation versus being able to have some kind of of technology or product that can go straight to consumers where you might have a much faster, a much shorter selling cycle, a much faster opportunity for sales growth. And understanding the, the customers and their sales, the sales lead time and what their buying processes look like, those are really, really critical. Um, education is often, if not always, a big component of that because there's not that much that's simple. One of the biggest challenges that I see a lot of companies have, and this was true in high tech as well as in clean tech, is getting wrapped up in the potential of what a product could do or what a technology could do, and kind of forgetting the what it could do for somebody and why they would care about that. And being being able to frame it from that perspective so that it's all about what benefit is it delivering to the customer and to the end user and and is that customer even the one that's writing the paying the bill i think that that's that's a significant challenge and i think it's even a bigger challenge for any kind of technical founder in any field because they want to tell the story of the coolness but the coolness isn't necessarily what sells unless you're, you know, we're, we're at that adoption cycle, unless you're at the innovator stage where they do care about the coolness. But if you want to start to really make some sales, it has to be, if I'm your customer, why do I care? Tell me so what, tell me what it does for me, now I'm listening. And that, that can be a little bit more complicated story than it can be for an app. Well, you had a great example of 
looking back a couple years in the environmental innovation practicum of a student, of a young entrepreneur. So the, the practicum is only, you know, once a week for 10 weeks. That's our, our quarters at UW. And it was the second of the last class. So the students had uh, only a matter of days left to finish their final project. And um, I had Jim Hanna, who is now with Microsoft, but he was then the sustainability director for Starbucks. Um, and, and several, I had a panel of sustainability directors in talking about where some of these environmental innovations get deployed with corporate purchasers and what they're looking for. And it was, it was a fun class. Um, TJ DiCaprio was there from, from Microsoft. And, and Jim was talking about having done uh, you know, the analysis of, of Starbucks' carbon footprint. And you know, they had really put a significant effort into wringing as much carbon dioxide and, and as much greenhouse gas pollution out of their business as they could. And they were surprised by this slice of the pie chart that represented where their emissions were happening, um, and it was for um, nitric oxide, and that's the gas that everybody uses to make whipped cream. Well, I'm a mocha drinker. I I force myself not to get the whipped cream for the calories, but most of us can go. Yes, hot chocolate, mochas, lattes. Throw some whipped cream on there, and offhanded, you know, Jim said. So if anybody has an idea to deal with that, I'd love to hear it. So in the in the student in the class is an MBA candidate, um, Chris Metcalf. Uh, Chris is uh, also an experienced entrepreneur, so he had done this before. He had come back to get his MBA, kind of thinking about what he wanted to do next. And he hears, he hears this and goes straight home to A, validate the problem because that's the way his mind works, and B, see whether or not there's merit to the idea he already has. To start dealing with it. So he and his team pitched the project that they were working on for class, did fine, but they were already already working. He and one of his other classmates uh, were already working on what was going to become Carvada. And they took it to the Environmental Innovation Challenge, and they did pretty well there, and they took it to the Business Plan Competition, and they did pretty well there, and they, they took it to the marketplace. So the company is three years old. Um, they have paying customers. They don't yet have Starbucks, which Chris would still really, really like to have uh, as a customer. But yeah, it's, and, and for me, that's the reward. You know, Chris and I have these, these conversations that he, he's like so grateful for the opportunity that came from class. And it's like, but you're the reason I do this, you know, for, for this kind of an opportunity to happen. This is why I teach this class, because I want, we need environmental innovation. We have so many environmental challenges, um, you know, to deal with. I believe in the power of the marketplace to make a contribution. I believe in entrepreneurs and innovators to come up with creative solutions that we're just not going to find any other way. And so when I get to see somebody like Chris take this and make it into a real business and know that this is a serious problem and it could have some serious impact when he's solving it, I am so happy. Your passion with the environment, with clean tech, sustainability, do you see that as one of the great opportunities right now for entrepreneurs and innovators, more than maybe anything else? Well, I, I see it as a great opportunity because I see it as an enormous problem, right? And whenever we have an enormous problem, it's always a great opportunity because the fixes have got to be found. And they need to be found at some significance of scale. 
So that means that you don't have to just nibble around the edges and, and solve small problems, although small problem fixes certainly combine to solve big problems, but there are also opportunities to tackle some of the really big problems and to look at how we can make some of these things happen. And the great thing about clean tech in my mind is you've got the environmental challenges, which have enormous impact on not only the planet, but human health and quality of life and cost of living and all of these things that are, are very, very human, not just about other species on the planet. But you do have that marriage with high technology, right? We, what we've seen happen with solar, um, as an example, is the exact same thing happen, that we saw happen with computers and with cell phones, right? Where costs of, of production are starting to plummet, and we're seeing this fabulous leapfrogging. You know, um, I don't know if you had a chance to see an Inconvenient Sequel, Al Gore's uh, movie that came out this summer, but there's a, a fabulous image of a grass hut with a solar panel attached to it. And we saw the same thing happen with cell phones, you know, where we had a lot of countries where they didn't have infrastructure for landline telephones, but cell towers could go up and now cell phones are a lifeline. And then you see uh, startups that are trying to deal with, okay, how do we help people in remote areas get charged, get those cell phones charged. And I've seen some really cool models of companies that are doing solar chargers and coming right back to the, okay, how can this work for the community in which we're selling these, where purchasing is a different beast than it might be in a first world country where we just lay down a credit card and, and pay for something you know, up front. And so there's just all these interconnected opportunities and they're, they're great. They're exciting. And that's what's fun. Another big thank you to Deb Hagen-Lukens and all our guests. You can subscribe to Founded on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast platforms. And please join the Burke Center again at the end of each week for more great guests from the entrepreneurship ecosystem here in the Pacific Northwest.